Um, for those of you that weren't here last week, uh, and can I just say it's so great to see so many of you here, uh, and we've got a lot of people here at the nine o'clock as well, and it's great to see a lot of people that I don't know. I'm Leon, um, I'm the senior pastor of the church here, um, and it's really good to see you here and welcome this morning. If you weren't here last week, where were you? Because you missed an amazing time, uh, and we launched our series called We've Got Mail, uh, looking at some of the, a couple of chapters from the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is that book in the Bible which is really confusing. A lot of it is about the future, but the bits that we're looking at are not about the future. They're about the now, and they're letters that were given by Jesus through the Apostle John to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is the area that we now call Turkey. And when, when, uh, the letter, when John starts writing, as Jesus is dictating to him, he uh, starts off by talking about walking among seven golden lampstands. These are our seven lanterns representing the seven churches. Okay, and we put wire on the bottom here now, so I have to be very careful walking through uh, this whole thing. But these are represent the seven churches. And, 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 and light is important because light isn't, isn't just about the light we've received. It's about the light we're meant to give as Christians and as churches. We're meant to be light in dark places. Amen. And uh, Jesus wrote to Ephesus and to Smyrna first. And the message he gave to Ephesus that we've taken is be passionate. You know, they were so great. They were the mother church. They were the resource church in the whole region. But they lost their first love. And then to Smyrna, again a great church, you know, the message that came through that we took was be faithful. You know, be faithful. So be passionate and be faithful. But we're going to move on this morning and with the wonders of modern technology, you're going to see a recreation of what the third church would have looked like in the days that we're looking at in the Bible. So look at the screens. This is Pergamum. Moving even further north, we come to the city of Pergamum. This is now just a small town called Bergama, but it wasn't always like that. The name Pergamon means elevation, and this was a prominent place in the ancient Roman world. This is where the first temple to imperial emperor worship was built. And before Ephesus, Pergamon was the religious centre of the ancient world. It was also the place where other gods were worshipped like Zeus and Athena, Dionysus and Asclepius. This was the, the place where the church faced a real crisis. When under the um, worship of the imperial emperor Domitian, one of the early church leaders, Antipas, refused to bow down to the emperor and was brought here and he was martyred, he was executed for his faith. This was a place where pagan and early Christian teachings were examined. The church really needed to know what it believes and what it would stand for. This was a church facing challenges of belief and practice. Pergamum, you've got mail. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 2, that would be great. And uh, we're looking at this church in a city called Pergamum. Let me just tell you, let me try and describe it to you. You saw it as it would have looked, which is amazing, that reconstruction. Uh, Pergamum was a religious city. There were gods everywhere. There were temples everywhere. There were altars everywhere, all over the place. It was also an academic city. Uh, there was a library in Pergamon which had 200,000 books, which was the biggest library in the world at that time. It's where parchment was first uh, used. It's if you're in the medical profession, there's a symbol of a staff with a snake coiled around it. You know, that w- originated in Pergamon. It was a city of ideas, of academia, uh, of, of intelligence. Uh, it was also a Roman city. There's evidence that they considered this to be the greatest city in terms of Caesar worship. 
In fact, in 9 BC, the Emperor Augustus built a temple there to himself, who he referred to as the Son of God. You need to understand, when you read your Bible, you're reading it in a context. When we declare Jesus is the Son of God, listeners in the first century would have thought, oh, no, Caesar calls himself the Son of God, and you're saying you're the Son of God. It all means something. It was also a proud city. The name Pergamon means elevation. It was high. It was lifted up. It was proud of of what it was. It was also a violent city. In the opening uh, verses here, Jesus says, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, is what he says. That sounds like either the mafia or the IRA, doesn't it? As if you're old enough to remember that. I know where you live. um, But but, but the, the meaning of this is important. You see, the governor of Pergamon was given by the emperor the right of the governor, which meant he was given the right of the sword. He could determine life or death. So when Jesus opens up his letter to Pergamon and he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, the listeners are thinking, the governor has the right of the sword, but Jesus is saying, actually folks, I'm the governor, isn't he? He's saying, you might think that you have a governor who's been put there by Caesar, but I want you to know that I am the governor. And that's what he's saying as he opens up. Now, the commendation that comes to the church in verse 13 is fantastic. I know where you live. Now, you can hear, I know where you live in two ways. I know where you live and I'm going to get you. Or you can hear, I know where you live. I know where you are. I know your circumstances. I know your situation. That's the context for how he says, I know where you live. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. And then he says it again, as if to re-emphasize, where Satan lives. Now just to give you the context for this, Antipas, the fellow that you saw on the screen you know, just an artist, an actor, reconstruction, was put to death in a most horrific way, legend and history tells us. Not sure whether it is legend or history, but but this is is the, the most common view. He was boiled alive in a bronze kettle that had a bull's head on the top of it. So that as he was dying, the noises of his death were coming through this bull's nostrils as the people watched. That's pretty horrific, isn't it? Pretty horrific. And, and Jesus is saying to these guys, you live in a place where Satan has his throne, where there are gods and ideas and ideologies all around, yet you remain true to my name. That's awesome, isn't it? That's awesome. I know where you live, guys. I know that you live in tough circumstances where Satan you know, lives and where there's all this pressure, and yet you guys remain true to my name. And I want to say this morning to this church, okay, if you're a visitor, then you're looking in on this, okay? I want to say to you guys in this church, I want to commend you because I know where you live too. <laughs> and that's not a threat. I know where many of you live. I know those of you that live in difficult marriage situations and circumstances. I know where some of you live who live in difficult financial and job situations. I know where some of you lived and have lived through incredibly difficult health issues and yet you guys, so many of you, I want to say to you, have remained true to the name of God. And that's an awesome thing. You see, we in this church, I can identify this church with that statement there because I know many of you have lived and are living through tough circumstances but you are staying true to God. And that's brilliant, isn't it? 
But then he goes on <laughs> to say a few other things. And this is the point in teaching where, you know, when you're doing exposition teaching, which is working through the passage as it is, you're going to get to some bits that you think, oh, I really don't want to talk about that. That's the time when I think, why didn't I give Dan this talk? You see, uh, why did I slip up there? Why am I doing that? Because that's not the, like the most inspirational or fantastic. I can't, you know, imagine people getting all excited about that. Why didn't I give that to Dan? But I didn't, so here I am. So we're going to look at it. This today, folks, is grown-up teaching. This is like big boy pants teaching, where you put the pants on and you think, right, we're going to be a big boy and a big girl today. Is that okay? So this is grown-up teaching, what we're going to talk about this morning. And um, what he says, he says, there's all this great stuff. Nevertheless, in verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have people there, not everyone, but you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So he says, guys, you're really faithful. And he actually says, and you, you do some amazing stuff. And you've been true to the name of God, but there are people among you and you're letting them teach and do some things that are not right. Hear it from the message translation. Why do you indulge that Balaam crowd? Why do you put up with the Nicolaitans? What Jesus is saying is this. You're a great church. You remain true to my name, but you are too tolerant. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Tolerant. How many of you heard that word in our culture? Tolerant. Ever heard it? Of course you have. We hear it all the time. My question to you this morning is this. How tolerant is too tolerant? How tolerant is too tolerant? See, we believe in grace and we believe in space and we believe in difference and we respect other people and we respect other people's views and all of that. But the question we have to grapple with is how tolerant is too tolerant? And that's the thrust of what Jesus is saying to Pergamum and what he says to Thyatira as well, which we're going to look at later. Now, we can be tolerant, or this tolerance issue can do with people's views and their beliefs, but also behaviour and lifestyle. Let me give you some examples. People of other religious views, not Christianity. How tolerant should we be of people with other religious views, not Christianity? Well, let's engage you this morning. How many of you think, by a show of hands, that it's okay for people who follow other religions to come to our evangelistic events? How many of you think that would be good? Great. How many think it's okay for people of other religious views to come to our Sunday morning services? How many think it's okay for people of other um, religious views to serve alongside us as we take our rakes and make an impact in the gardens of Hales Owen? How many think it's okay if they came to our life groups? Or taught our kids in DZ or youth? (laughs) See, there's, there's there's a challenge there, isn't there? We're all tolerant, but then as you go through that, there comes a point where you say, actually... We have to draw a line somewhere because we could be too tolerant. Let's flip it again. What about people who are believers but who have really different views to us? Quite extreme different views. How tolerant is too tolerant? Let me give you an example. The prosperity teaching. Some people hold to the prosperity teaching. To extreme supernatural to the fact that there shouldn't be women in leadership when we as a church believe there should. 
There are some believers that would not believe in the work of the Holy Spirit when we would. How tolerant is too tolerant? <laughs> it's an interesting question, isn't it? How much space do we give people before we say, do you know what? We're going to draw a line there. How tolerant is too tolerant? Well, the answer is in the text, in my opinion. In verse 14, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And in verse 15, likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The word hold literally means hold fast. You see, there's a difference when someone's exploring views or they're exploring opinions or they're exploring beliefs. There's something different between that and when someone holds fast. Because when you hold fast, A, you don't let go very easily and B, you try and influence other people. So I want to say to you this morning, and I've never ever, I don't think I've ever said this from the stage here in Zion. There may be occasions when we might say to some people who may be believers but who hold, so, hold fast to so different contrary views to us that aren't minor things but are major things where we might say to them, do you know what? You would be better exploring your faith with a different community than us. Because these things are fundamental to us. You see, if you said, you know what, there's no way on earth that a woman should be in leadership, you are going to struggle with us walking down our road because we passionately believe that to be true. And the question how tolerant is too tolerant isn't just about um, belief, but it's more pressing in many senses with actually behavior and lifestyle. You see, I want to say to you this morning that if we want to stay passionate like Ephesus was called to do and faithful like Smyrna was called to do we're going to have to be something and this is where we've got mail this morning where it flipped to we've got mail we are going to have to be watchful you can flip the screen now to the next slide we are going to have to be watchful we're going to have to watch in terms of our belief but we're also going to have to watch in terms of our behavior and our lifestyle there was a song a few years ago by a band that I used to like that I don't know whether you do or even heard of. Some of you will have called the Manic Street Preachers. They wrote a song and it said, if you tolerate this, then your children will be next. That was in connection to violence and racism. But that phrase is really important. If you tolerate this, your children will be next. Some people believe in things like generational curses. I've got mixed views on that. But I do believe that what we allow and what we do tolerate now our kids, spiritually and naturally, will, have, will be impacted by that. Isn't that right? See, we talk about our modern promiscuous society. Our young people are so promiscuous and so into all kinds of sex. Do you know why? Because in the 60s, in the 60s, we broke up our Christian moral foundation in this nation and in the West. And it was the 60s generation that opened the door for what our kids are growing up in right now. Because if you tolerate this, your children will be next. So how tolerant is too tolerant? Let me just throw a few things out. How much alcohol, as a believer, is too much alcohol to drink? What about the kind of things we watch on TV or at the movies or on our, on our screens? I can't, I've lost track of the amount of times I've had this conversation with believers and I've got to the point where I'm exasperated beyond belief. Because some people believe that it doesn't matter what you watch, it really matters what you watch. Because when you watch something, you've watched it. It's gone into your mind and your psyche and your spirit. And I don't care who you are, it's in and it will affect you. 
And I know that there are lots of things that I've watched that I shouldn't have watched. I know that. Now, I'm not going to stand here and say, you know, these are the films you should watch. and these. I'm not going to do that. You have to wrestle with God yourself over that. And you'll draw the line at different places to what I might do. But what I'm saying is this. We can be too tolerant. We can allow too much into our life and it can affect us spiritually. What about how we handle our finances? What about the jokes that we share in? The attitudes that we, that we display? And the Bible says, you know, you guys, you live in Satan's throne. You live where Satan has his throne. Now, the problem for us is that we also live where Satan has his throne, but he's much more subtle about it in our culture. A few years ago, Dan and Helen and myself went out to India uh, to spend time with Mark and Shirley and the family. And I remember on one trip, been a few times, we went to some of these temples and Mark didn't want to go in, but I really did, and Dan did, and Helen did, and we went in to, to some of these temples, and often when you're overseas and you go to temples, they're just monuments, aren't they, to something that happened centuries ago, not in India, because when you go in, and we went into this one place, which is which is really big uh, shrine, very uh, significant part of southern India, and we went in, and not only were people worshipping in there, there were a whole group of people in a communal trance. And there was music going on and there was smoke coming out and there were sounds and there was smells and all the hairs on the back of my head and I haven't got many on my head. They were all up on, on, and I'm like, no way. This is where Satan has his throne. It was so obviously demonic. And yet we live in a world that is much more subtle than that, don't we? But I want to tell you, Satan unfortunately is alive and well in our culture. And many believers are pulled away from the passionate faith because they are too tolerant. We can be too tolerant. There are some challenges for us. The first challenge, I think, is the challenge of the boiling frog. Now, that's not what I'm going to suggest you do after when you leave church this morning, all right? But you know the kind of illustration there about when you put a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out. Actually, this is not true, but this is the illustration. And when you put a frog in cold water and you boil him up slowly, he's not going to know. He's just going to boil to death. But isn't it true that when we tolerate stuff a little bit, we are like the boiling frog, aren't we? Because what we've done is we've allowed something in and we've allowed it over time to get hotter and hotter and hotter in our life. And then all of a sudden, we're in a different place. The other challenge I think we've got is the challenge of the Trojan horse. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Troy, okay, is not just, Troy didn't just come to show off Brad Pitt's six pack. You do know that, don't you? Troy is a place actually in northern Turkey, not that far away from Pergamum. And you know the history, the legend of the Battle of Troy, and that here's this city which is impenetrable. They cannot get in, the Greeks can't get in to, to, to Troy, they can't get into the city until they send a horse in. And because the, the, the Trojans let the horse in, because the horse seemed innocuous to them, but once they let the, tro- the, the horse into the city, within the horse were the seeds of their own destruction. What appeared to be innocuous, what appeared to be meaningless, actually within it had the seeds of their destruction. Do you know what? So many Christians have let Trojan horses into their city. We've let something or someone or an idea or a belief or a practice into our city and within it are the seeds of our spiritual destruction. Oh, do you know what? She's just a friend. He's just a friend. They're going through a tough time. They need someone to talk to. How many marriages have been destroyed because of that Trojan horse? 
Oh, it's okay. It doesn't matter how I do that because the tax man, he's got enough money anyway. So if I don't declare that, it does. How many people have been destroyed through the Trojan horse of being irregular with their money, spiritually? And I know that this is tough stuff this morning, but, but, but this, is, this is the truth, that when we allow things into our city, they carry with them the seeds, potentially, of our spiritual destruction. Huh. What's, what, what's the response? In verse 16, Jesus said, repent, stop. Stop going that right, where you just tolerate everything. You know, you, you're so great and you were faithful, but you, you just put up with this. Don't put up with it any longer. Stop. Go a different way. Go a different way. At the nine o'clock, somebody, somebody felt really challenged and came and shared a word there about, about this and about stuff actually that was on their iPod. A band that glorified sex outside of marriage. And they loved the band, but then suddenly the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, but you on your iPod are carrying stuff that's glorifying something that you don't believe in. And they felt convicted to take that off and to share that with us this morning. Repent. Stop doing it. And not tomorrow, but now. There's an imperative about this word. And then there's a promise that if we do this, if we live like this, if we're watchful, there's a promise. Jesus says, listen, if you listen to this and you live like this and you overcome, I'm going to give you hidden manna and I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name written on it. What on earth is that? Hidden manna is this sense of in the wilderness they were given manna that strengthened them. And there's a sense in which God is saying, you live in a place where Satan has his throne. You have pressure all around you. When you stay faithful... And when you refuse to tolerate what you shouldn't tolerate, do you know what? I'll strengthen you in that wilderness. That's a promise from God. That when you choose to live right like God says, God says, I'm going to strengthen you. And then he says, I'm going to give you a new stone, a white stone with a white name written on it. What on earth is that? Do you know what? I do not have a clue. And in my research this week, I've read lots of commentaries and there's all different kinds of views as to what that is. So what I want to do is I want to give you a challenge. The person that can email me the best, most plausible uh, description of what that is, I'm going to give a special prize to. Is that okay? So have a little look. I've already had a couple of suggestions after the nine o'clock. I don't have a clue what it might be, but, but when I read it, it says, Jesus says, I'll give it to you. It'll be white with a new name written on it. So Jesus is giving it to me. It's white. It's got a new name. It ain't going to be bad, is it? It ain't going to be bad. And so there's something in this, guys, where it says, listen, how tolerant is too tolerant? You need not to be too tolerant because there's a lot at stake. Because if we let Trojan horses into the city, the city potentially could be destroyed. That's true of a life. It's true of a marriage. It's true of a family. It's true of a church. I want us to stand for a moment. Can we just stand for a moment? And I want you to close your eyes with me just for a moment. Just try and ignore everyone else around you for a moment. And I want you just to, you know, know, Jesus says, I know where you live. And I walk among the lampstands. So I want you to imagine that Jesus himself, okay? I want you to imagine that Jesus himself is walking among the lampstands right now. So if we just be still just for one moment, wherever we are, if we could just be still for one moment, that would be great. And just imagine that Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands and you're a lampstand. 
Father God, I ask that right now, as you walk in our midst and look closely at each person, I ask that you would put each of us through the same kind of test you put the members of the church in Pergamum through. Lord, see if there is any offensiveness in us and lead us in the everlasting way. Convict us of any thoughts, attitudes and actions that keep us from living in ways that please you. And then tell us what we need to do to change. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Why don't you take your seats, look at the screen. We're heading off to Thyatira. Here we are in ancient Thyatira. Now it's a large town called Akizar. But the original name means odour of affliction. One of the things this place was famous for was for the worship of the god Apollo, the god of the sun. Thyatira was a Roman garrison that sat on the road between Pergamum and Laodicea, a really important trade route. In fact, one of its most famous inhabitants was Lydia, a tradeswoman, a seller of purple. She met the Apostle Paul in Philippi in Acts 16 and she became one of the most important female leaders of the early church. Thyatira was also famous for its brass work and it's no accident that Jesus opens his message to the church there with these words that I am the one, he says, who has feet of bronze. Thyatira sat on a road. Lots of ideas passed through this road and issues of authority and leadership and tolerance were important issues for this church. This church needed to know what it believed. Thyatira, you've got mail. Okay, so Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18 is what we're looking at. Now let me just ask you a question before we get into this. This past week, how many of you have had any thoughts at all, okay, relating to the Old Testament system of sacrifice? Anyone? How many of you have had any thoughts at all relating to uh, the fact that Jesus fulfilled over 350 Old Testament prophecies? Or the eschatological significance of Israel? How many of you have had any thoughts at all in this last week, anyway, related to sex? Okay, yeah, you see, you see where I'm going at here. See, most of us in reality, okay, we don't think a lot about a lot of those things. But when it comes to this subject, there is nobody who is immune from this subject. And again, why didn't I get Dan to preach on this this morning? What is wrong with me? I really need to sort that out. But when we come to Thyatira, Thyatira is the most insignificant city in Asia Minor. It's the smallest city, but it has the longest letter written to it. It's not an academic city like Pergamum. It's not a cosmopolitan, uh, huge city like Ephesus. Thyatira is a blue-collar town. This is where people work. This is manual work. This is, this is, interestingly enough, this was where trade unions really existed. Thousands of years ago, trade unions really existed. Lydia, as you saw on the screen, was a woman who lived in Thyatira. And she becomes an important leader in the early church. She sold linen. And she came from this place. And interestingly enough, each each trade union that you belong to was connected to a god. So if you're in the NUT or whatever union you're in, okay, you need to know if, if you're in this time, it was connected to a god. And each god had a temple. And if you were in the union of whatever it was, cloth makers or tanners or whatever, 
then not only did you pay subscription to that God, but you went to the temple and you offered sacrifices and from time to time you would indulge in sexual immorality in the temple as part of your paying your dues to that God. Now, when I read that, I think, wow, that's crazy, isn't it? So, so you're telling me that there, are, there were some people thousands of years ago that in order to keep their job or get ahead in their job would have to do things contrary to their deepest held values and beliefs. Can't imagine that, can you? But you see, you can, can't you? Because many of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you true, you too live in a Thyatira, don't you? You live in an environment and in a culture where on you daily is a pressure to do what you don't really want to do in order to get on in your job. And I want you to know that Jesus says to you, I know where you live. I know that you live in that pressured situation at work where you're being pressured and forced into doing something that you don't want to do. I know where you live and I want to strengthen you and support you. But can I say this? You also have a part to play in this. I was talking about this with uh, one of our, our youth uh, leaders this week and she told me about um, an instance in America where on one of these reality TV shows, you know these reality shows which we all love so much, love being not the word, um, like X Factor, that kind of thing. Uh, but this was a reality TV show connected to acting and connected to the winner of it would end up on Glee, that program which I'm sure some of you heard about and some of you watch and need help of a ministry type. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, so, so and, and, and the thing goes, and I watched it on YouTube, that one of the fellas, Cameron I think his name was, uh, is, um, was a Christian and was really talented and got to the point where he's the guy that's going to get through and possibly win the whole thing. And, and the story goes, it's, it was only recently that he looked at it all and he realised that he was going to be forced, if you like, or pressured to kiss people that he didn't want to kiss and to act certain things out. And he reached a point where he thought, do you know what? I am not going to do this because of the values I have. And he walked away from the contract and from the fame and from the money and from all of that. And it is possible, it is possible to do that. But sometimes you're in situations where it's not possible to do that. Where you are in the job and you have to grapple with what it means to not be too tolerant, but to actually live out your faith. And, and the interesting thing is that, that, that when, when uh, Jesus talks to this church, uh, you know, he says, listen, he kicks off by saying, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and you're now doing more than you did at first. It's amazing. So you're better than Ephesus because the, the Ephesian church, they'd forsaken their first love. You're doing more than you did at first. You're doing, you've got love, you're loving people, you've got service, you've got deeds. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, I don't want to get hooked into who Jezebel was and the whole Jezebel thing, all right? I personally believe that whole Jezebel spirit thing um, has often been used by men uh, to, to talk about strong women, and I don't ascribe to that personally myself. For me, we're not talking about a real woman, although there was a real woman called Jezebel in the Old Testament. What we're talking about here is not a real woman. What we're talking about here is sexual immorality, which affects both men and women. You do know that, don't you? 
And what, and what Jesus is saying is that you're a great church, that you're in this pressured situation where you have to do things that you don't want to do. And you, you love God and you serve and you do all that stuff, but somehow you've tolerated the presence of sexual immorality in your lives and in the community of faith. And the message that's coming home to us, I believe, we've got mail as well, Jason, and it's this, be holy, be holy. As well as be passionate, as well as be faithful, as well as be watchful. In other words, it doesn't just matter what you do, it matters who you are. We're meant to be holy, distinct. You know, holy gets a really bad, oh, he's holier than thou, isn't he? You know that expression? Oh, he's a holy roller and all this. It's like a really negative thing. Being holy just means that, do you know what? We're set apart. We want to live like God wants us to live. And often that's counterculture, isn't it? So we don't want to just do all that stuff because we want to be holy. We want to live holy lives. And what I want to do in just the 10 minutes that I've got left is I want to just talk to you about sex, okay? I don't know why we struggle to talk about sex in church. I don't know why it is that we see this oil and water thing when it comes to church and sex. I don't know why we do that. And I want to tell you a story first, which some of you will know, but it's such a great story. Do you remember, you won't remember, some of you will remember, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon in 1969, some of you will remember that, but you know the story. He not only gave his famous one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind statement, but he followed it by several other remarks to other astronauts. And just as he was about to get in the ship, he said under his breath, good luck, Mr. Gorski. So people at NASA, they heard this and they didn't know what it was about. They thought perhaps it was a Soviet, uh, you know, Russian uh, astronaut. But there was no Gorski in either the Russian or the American space programs. Over the years, many people questioned Armstrong as to what the good luck Mr. Gorsky statement was all about. But he always smiled and dodged the question. Then on the 5th of July, 1995, in Tampa Bay, Florida, while answering questions following a speech, a reporter brought up the 26-year-old question to Armstrong. This time, he finally responded. You see, Mr. Gorsky had died, and so Neil Armstrong felt he could now answer the question. Then he tells the story. You see, when he was a child, Neil Armstrong, he was playing baseball with a friend in the back garden. His friend hit a ball which landed in the front of his neighbor's bedroom window. His neighbors were Mr. and Mrs. Gorski. As the young Neil Armstrong leaned down to pick up the ball, he heard Mrs. Gorski shouting at Mr. Gorski, Sex? You want sex? You'll get sex when that kid next door walks on the moon. It's a great story, isn't it? That's fantastic. So he's picking this baseball up and he hears Mrs. Gorski saying, you're going to get sexy if that kid next door walks on the moon. And years later, the first man to step on the moon says, good luck, Mr. Gorski. <laughs> what a fantastic story. T- turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. This is a passage of scripture that, that Paul writes to the church at Corinth and this teaching is not mine. This is from a guy called Gene Apple that I want to credit because this is his thoughts, but I do agree with them all. He puts it better than I can. Let me just read this to you. You see, the question I want to ask is this. How serious are sexual sins? See, we believe that sin is sin, okay? So they're no worse or greater, but they are more serious than other sins, and I want to show you why. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. 
You see, the Nicolaitans, they believe that because we were under grace, it doesn't matter how we live. And Jesus said, no, 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 it really does matter how you live, even when you're under grace. Everything is permissible for me. I can do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins, listen, this is, this is the word of God. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. I had a debate with some young people recently who brought up in Christian environments who were arguing with me that sex outside of marriage is never mentioned in the Bible and that it's okay. When I see sexual immorality, when I hear that word, and that word in the Greek, porneia, covers lots of things. My understanding is that sexual immorality is sex outside of marriage. It also covers things like pornography and habitual masturbation and all other kinds of things. And so when I look at this, I think sexual sins seem to be more serious than other sins. And they're more serious for a number of reasons. Number one, sexual sins are committed by bodies... That have dignity. It says that in verse 13. You know, it says, uh, God will destroy them. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. We're created in the image of God. Our bodies are created with dignity. Number two, sexual sins force Jesus to share in our immorality. In verse 15, it talks about the bodies are members of Christ. Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? When we commit acts of sexual immorality, it's more than biology. Because if we're Christians and Christ lives in us by his spirit, Christ is a part of that, isn't he? When we sin in this area, we wound Jesus as well as wounding ourselves and potentially other people. Number three, sexual sins take a heavier toll on our body than other sins. Verse 18, all of the sins a man commits or a woman are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his body. You see... Sexual relationship is more than the exchange of bodily fluids. When we commit sex, when we have sex, we commit ourselves, we are bound at a deeper level than just pure biology. There's emotional ties, there are spiritual ties, there are all kinds of ties and connections. And when I think about the physical side and the guilt and the shame and the regret that sexual sins carry with it, that's why it's more serious than other sins. And I have never, in all my years now, and there's been a few now, in talking with people, I've never heard anybody say, I cannot forgive myself of that swear word I used 13 years ago. Never heard anyone say that. I've never heard anybody say, you know, I just can't shake off the guilt from when I lost my temper that once. But I tell you what, I can tell, I've, there's hundreds of times when people have said to me, I can't forgive myself for what I've done sexually. 
Because it seems, it seems to carry with it a greater seriousness of shame and regret and guilt than other things do. Number four, sexual sins defile God's temple in 19a. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Here's a thought for you, which you may never have had before and you may never want to have again. If you'd imagine committing an act of sexual immorality in this building. So, so when, we, when the band's finished and all cleared up and you've sung your songs and we've all said hi with each other and everyone's gone, imagine yourself committing an act of sexual immorality in this building. Well, as horrific as that, that may be, can I just remind you that this is not God's temple? You are. And I am. And we could never imagine ourselves committing an act of sexual immorality in this space. Well, I'll tell you what, God doesn't view this space as his temple anyway. You're his temple and I'm his temple. And when we commit acts of sexual immorality, we defile God's temple. And number five, sexual sins dishonor Christ because our bodies belong to him. The Bible says we are not our own. We were bought at a price. Now, can I just say, Jesus says to all of us, I believe, through the teaching of Scripture, you've got to take drastic action when it comes to this area. You've got to remove temptation. And if you play with fire, do you know what you'll get? Burn. You've got to remove temptation. You've got to find a friend that you can be honest with, that you can be accountable with. I have some, and, and if I'm getting too close to a woman, or if I'm feeling something I shouldn't be feeling, or watching something I shouldn't be watching, I know that when I meet with them, they'll ask me, because I'll ask them. Does that mean I don't fall or fail? No. But it means that there's some people in my life who I'm accountable to. That's really important. And number three, you've got to pray and ask God to help you. I know that there'll be some people here, and you'll say, it's all right for you, you're married. And you're in a single situation where this is a real challenge for you this whole year. Can I just say to you, lovingly and with grace, I don't know what that's like. You're right. I don't understand that. You're right. But can I just say to you, a lonely heart is easier to live with than a guilty heart. And I want to encourage you to ask God to pray and to pray to ask God to help you and strengthen you in this area. Because when we commit sexual sins, it's serious. And what we carry through the rest of our life is serious. But do you know what? God is a God who forgives. And God is a God who restores. And I want you to know that if you've ever, and you, and you right now are sitting there feeling guilty, I want you to know God loves you. And God can forgive you. And I often say to young people, you know that God will not restore your virginity, but he can restore your purity. And it doesn't matter with God what has happened in your past if we come to God and if we're repentant and we ask God, the Bible says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us. He washes us as clean as snow. Isn't that amazing? So I want you to know this morning that God is on your side, okay? God is on your side this morning. And then there's just some final words and then we're going to pray and respond. And at the end of the passage here in Revelation, he just talks. And I look at Pergamon and Thyatira very similar. Because I think the issues in both churches were tolerance. You're tolerating too much. You're letting too many things in. And the issues were similar. And then right at the end, he says in verse 25, Hold on to what you have until I come. You've got to get really passionate about this. So many Christians let go of what God has done far too easily. God has filled your life. God has spoken to you. God has done things in your life. And we let it go far too easily. And he says, listen, you're living where Satan has his throne, where there's pressures on you at work, where the pressure of the sexual age in which we live in is pressurizing you every day. Don't let go of what God has put in your life. Amen? Hold on 
And then he says, and continue to do good works. Verse 26, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, keep on living the right kind of life and get ready for the end. And then he promises that if you overcome and you keep going, I'm going to give you authority over the nations. And that's a big one we could speak on for ages there. And I'm also going to give you the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, we're lights and we're lamps. But the Bible says that there's one who is like the morning star. And his name is Jesus. And so when I look at these churches and I hear these messages, it's like God saying, listen, if you stay faithful, passionate, watchful, holy, not only will you overcome on the earth, but you'll get me. The bright and the morning star. Isn't that amazing? And so the challenge to us today is will we? Will we live holy, set apart, different, distinct lives? Why don't we pray? Let's close our eyes for a moment. Ask the band if they could come back. That's why we just close our eyes and Mark can start to play for me, mate. I just, before I ask us to respond to the holiness question, I just really feel that I want to I give some of you an opportunity who, who are in difficult job situations right now. And so for you, that whole thought of being in a pressured job where, you know, you have to do things you don't want to do, or it may be that your job pressure right now is that you don't know whether you're going to lose it or not. Or it may be that you have lost it and you haven't got a job right now, but you're pressured in work. Right? I, I want us to pray for you this morning. So, so if that's you and you're pressured in the work arena in any way, shape or form, just stand with me and let us pray for you this morning. It's cool. It's not because you've done anything wrong, nothing like that. You're just standing to say, listen, I'm under pressure right now and we want to pray for you. Father, we just want to bring these folks to you right now. God, some of them are in work and pressured. Some of them are out of work and are getting desperate even I don't know but God I declare this morning the words of scripture that is true you know where they live you know the jobs that they have you know the environment that they're in God I pray that you would walk amongst them by your spirit now I pray you'd strengthen them and encourage them I pray, Lord God, that you'd help them to stand firm. If the issues are issues of, of value and belief and that, I pray you help them stand firm. God, if, there's a, if there are issues of, 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 of needing a, a new job, then God, would you guide them? Would you release? Would you open something up for them, I pray? I pray that we'd hear some great stories of answers to prayer, of answers to prayer in our workplace. God, I pray that you'd cause them, even when they're going through the tough time, to remain holy and faithful and passionate and watchful and that they, Lord, would shine like stars, which is what your word says, in that dark place. So, Father, be with them, encourage them, strengthen them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take your seats, guys. Thank you. We're going to sing a song as we finish. And This is an old song, but it's so old that it's new for a lot of you. You've never heard it before. And it just is an invitation for God to purify our heart. It says, cleanse us from within. Make us holy, set apart, ready to do your will. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask that as we sing the song, that you respond to this by standing. 
Now, as you stand, I'm not just going to ask all of you to stand. And if I say, who wants to be holy, you'll all stand. And that's fine. But some of you are going to stand because actually you're doing something right now. You're tolerating something right now. It may not be in the sexual area. It may be in another area. But you're standing and you're saying, God, I'm not going to tolerate this any longer. I'm going to stand because I want to be holy, set apart. That's why some of you will stand. Some of you will stand because you have tolerated too much. Perhaps you failed and it may be in the sexual area and you're standing because you wanted to receive that forgiveness again today. And you went to say, God, and I'm not going to do it anymore. And you're going to stand. Some of you are going to stand as an act of thanksgiving because God has protected you and you've not tolerated stuff and you've not fallen. And you're going to stand as an act of thanksgiving to God. And then it may be that the rest of us are going to stand because we're just standing to say, Lord, I want to be holy. Amen. I want to be holy. I want to be set apart. I want to live my life like you want to live it. So as you feel prompted as we sing this song, I'm going to ask you to stand. And then we're going to pray and just see what God might want to do at the end. So as you want to, as a way of responding to Jesus, then let's stand. Because we want to be holy, set apart, ready to do your will.